Hello and welcome to episode two of Tell Me a True Crime Story podcast. I'm the host of this podcast. My name is Holly and I have a special guest with me today to talk about this true crime story that happened in Deltona, Florida. And her name is Mai Mai. Hello, um, I am Mai Mai and I'm here joining you guys on this podcast today. I am super excited to learn more about uh, what happened in these homes because I don't know much. Yeah, um, Mai Mai and I took a road trip today to go and take pictures of two relevant houses in this case um, so that we could post those pictures on our social media pages. And they were just average houses, right? I mean, you wouldn't think anything really they didn't look weird or out of place or no not at all um in my personal opinion it looked like a pretty nice neighborhood actually both of the houses looked well put together uh average family home so i'm curious to see what happened there right exactly just regular middle class neighborhood in america so yeah so um we'll get into this story in just a second um since this is a new podcast i just wanted to let you know Uh, to follow my social media pages on uh, Facebook and Instagram. It's at Tell Me A True Crime Story. And on Twitter, it's at Tell Me A TCS Pod. So please follow those pages and uh, stay updated on what stories we're doing. And you'll see the pictures that we took ourselves of these houses as they stand today. So, yeah, thank you very much. And if you haven't, go back and listen to episode one, which was the Terrytown murders. And today we're going to be talking about the Deltona massacre. So let me set the scene for you, my, my. It had just turned from Thursday night to Friday morning. So it's the very early hours of the morning, not much after 1 a.m., It's summertime in Central Florida, so kind of like now, the end of summer. August 6th, so it's hot, 80 degrees. You know how at night it's even still hot. Exactly. Humid, kind of sticky, and it was not raining on this night. We're going back in time to 2004. Wow. Yeah. So about 18 years ago. We're going to Deltona, Florida, in Volusia County. For those of you that aren't familiar with um, Florida counties and where they're located and all that, this is the same county that Daytona Beach is in. We're going to the Deltona Lakes area of Deltona. The street is named Telford Lane. And according to Redfin and Realtor.com, this home on Telford Lane is a one-story house 1,382 square feet with three bedrooms and two baths. So at this hour, in this average middle-class neighborhood, most people are sleeping, and it should be safe and peaceful. But that's not the case at this house, not at 3106 Telford Lane. Inside the home is an unbelievably macabre scene. So gruesome, So shocking, so horrifying. The floors, walls, 
and ceilings were covered with blood, tissue, and matter. Inside lay six dead souls. These young, innocent people's lives were snuffed out way too early in such a senseless and brutal way. Oh, wow, Holly. Six people. That's crazy. Six people, and we didn't even get to that part yet, but also um, an innocent little dachshund was killed, too. Yep. Tell us more. Yeah. As I read through the court documents when I did my research for this case, detailing what some of the killers had admitted to doing to these victims, it really hurt me. It was really tough to do the research on this case. The attack on these victims was swift and merciless, and it was over in a matter of minutes. They were all taken by surprise, attacked when they were sleeping and at their most vulnerable. The victims had defensive wounds, and at least one of the male victims fought back against his attackers. Two of the victims tried to flee from their attackers, and one female victim hid in a closet under laundry. But in the end, they would all be dead. Oh my goodness. I can't imagine the fear these people were feeling. I know, right? And then they were sleeping, so it's like... They didn't even really have time to react. Absolutely, to be woken up so abruptly in your sleep and waking up to murderers. Oh my gosh, I just can't even imagine the terror and fear that they felt um, that night. It's just awful. So, according to court documents, this is what happened on that fateful morning. So, as I said, it's a little bit after 1 o'clock in the morning Four ruthless killers parked and got out of a white Ford expedition around the corner from the home on Telford Lane where the victims were sleeping. So the killers walked up to the house. On them, they had aluminum baseball bats. The reputed ringleader and mastermind of of these murders was the oldest and biggest of the group. He was 27 years old and around 6'6", 270 pounds. Oh, wow. That's a huge man. Yes. Yeah, that's... Oh, wow. Okay, so he went around the house, peeking in the windows to see who was in what rooms, to see where they were located. He was trying to scope out the scene before he entered. To see where they were. He goes back to the front door where his three 18-year-old accomplices are waiting. He cut open the screen on the screen door, and he propped it open. So he directed the other three where to go once they gained entry into the home. He counted to three. Then he kicked in the locked front door with one powerful kick, breaking the deadbolt lock. So the three younger men that were with him, they enter the home before him, and they begin their ruthless attack on two men that were sleeping in the living room. The younger of the two men is 17 years old. He's the first one to be attacked and beaten. At one point, he tries to get up, but no, he will never get up again. The other male victim, who is 28 years old, who was sleeping in the living room too, he gets up and runs to a back bedroom. He's yelling to them that he doesn't live there. Now, can you imagine? He's probably like... Whatever this is, I'm not involved. I don't even live here, right? Like, what's going on, you know? He's like, I don't live here. Yeah. So he's probably thinking 
no telling what he's thinking. Maybe these people are involved in some kind of some you know shady business exact, and i don't want to be in the middle of exactly it. i don't live here you know and he's like running away so he's chased into that back room and that's where he loses his life so since all of the perpetrators split up all of these dreadful horrific beatings are happening simultaneously yeah. because there's four of the bad guys so in the master bedroom a couple had been asleep the 30-year-old male victim is killed and his 22-year-old girlfriend is savagely beaten to death and brutally raped with an aluminum bat, oh my causing substantial and significant trauma to her vaginal cavity all the way into her abdomen. She was beaten so badly that all of her teeth were gone. Her little doggy, George, is cruelly and viciously stomped to death. Meanwhile, in another back bedroom, a 19-year-old woman ran for her life and hid while her 34-year-old boyfriend attempted to fight back. He swung at his attacker with a stick. He ends up being hit by a bat on his shoulder by one of the killers and drops his stick. He is then beaten to death by another of the men. The woman hiding is discovered and she's beaten to death. After all were dead, the four younger perps leave the house and the older one remains looking through the house. Then one of the younger guys goes back in looking for the oldest of their group. They exit the house together and they all drive away. Then the oldest, the ringleader, says that he must return to the house. They go back and he gets out of the expedition with a bat and a switchblade knife. After a few minutes, he returns to the vehicle, wiping blood off of the switchblade onto his sweatshirt. The killers left the scene. They later attempted to dump the murder weapons, the bats, in a retention pond in DeBerry, Florida, which is not too far away from the murder scene. Two of the bats were later recovered in the pond, but two of them were located in brush near the pond. Apparently, they'd gotten stuck in the brush when the killers tried to hurl them into the pond. So that's pretty sad, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Terrible. That I mean, is like, it's terrible. unimaginable. Oh, my goodness. F- I'm, I need to hear the motive behind this. I know. It makes you These wonder what. young people and yeah. then... So sad for the older guy to prey on these three younger guys and have them commit such gruesome crimes at 18 years old and he's 27. Right. Like, why is he even hanging around with them? They're so young. And what in the hell could possibly possess you to uh, what what would possibly be the motive in this crime? You know, absolutely. That's terrible. I mean, it automatically makes you think of like, you know. A drug thing or something. So let's find out. So Aaron Ballinger, Ballinger, I think is how you pronounce it, was born on July 14th, 1982 in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. She was known for being strong-willed. She graduated from Drackett High School in Massachusetts in 2000. While living in Massachusetts, she'd worked at a nursing home where she met her boyfriend, Francisco Ayo Roman, who also worked there. Her boyfriend, Francisco, went by the nickname Flaco, which is a term of endearment in Spanish meaning skinny. Flaco was from Puerto Rico and didn't speak much English, and Aaron didn't speak any Spanish. 
but they loved each other and didn't let the language barrier keep them apart. They moved to Central Florida together in 2004. Aaron's grandparents, Joseph and Norma Reedy, were snowbirds. They summered in Maine and they wintered at their Florida home located at 1590 Providence Boulevard in Deltona, Florida. Aaron kept watch over her grandparents' house while they were away for the summer. On Friday, July 30th, 2004, police responded to a call about quote-unquote suspicious activity made by Aaron Belanger at her grandparents' home, the Reedy's home on Providence Boulevard. There were two strangers slash squatters at the home. They told the responding deputy that they were granted permission to be in the home by Troy Victorino and Joshua Spencer. Joshua Spencer is the Reedy's grandson and the cousin of Aaron Belanger. The deputy called the homeowners in Maine and spoke to Norma Reedy, Aaron's grandma. Norma told the deputy that no one should be in her home except her granddaughter, Aaron Belanger, who kept an eye on their home for them. The deputy didn't notice any signs of a break-in, but there were items in the screened-in porch and bedding, as if someone had been squatting there. The cop told Aaron Belanger to find out who the items belonged to and return them or throw them out. Aaron boxed up the items. It's unclear which items she disposed of what items she gave away, and or which ones she took to her own home with her. So, you know, I see. in Florida, you know, all these yeah. snowbirds, her, gran- her grandparents are snowbirds. They said, hey, you know, watch the house for us while we're gone. Keep an eye on it, whatever. She goes over there to swim one day in their pool, and there's this stuff there. I see. And she's like, what the heck? So she might have made somebody mad by taking their items or messing up their situation they had going on there living. That's super creepy. Imagine going to your family's house and there's already people there who aren't supposed to be their family or not. Yeah. It's very weird. And in that neighborhood, you would think that people would know they didn't belong there and would have already called the cops. I mean, absolutely. The neighbors are close. we were driving by, the neighbors were close. There were some outside. It's an extremely busy road to just be there. And when you're not supposed to. And you don't belong there. (laughs) I know. I thought that was really weird. I was like, hadn't anybody called the police prior to this and said, uh... I don't think these people are supposed to be hanging out at Norma's house, you know? Right, and you know, most of the time when it's somebody who shouldn't be there anyways, they're going to be doing odd things. Exactly. And suspicious Partying 24-7, right? Yes. People coming and going. Okay, so true. You, We will talk about that in a second. But you can kind of see how all of this is like, you, you can kind of, like you did, you already kind of put the pieces together of like, uh-oh, I smell trouble, you know? Yes. Okay, so the next day, Saturday, July 31st, 2004, Aaron reported to police that a VCR slash DVD player and a CD player had been stolen from her grandparents' home. The responding officer to her grandparents' home also saw that clothing and shoes were scattered about inside the house. According to one of the squatters, Troy Victorino, he claimed that he had permission from Joshua Spencer 
to live at his, meaning Joshua's, grandparents' Providence Boulevard home. Spencer had supposedly told him, Victorino, that his grandparents said it was okay if he lived there. Yeah. <laughs> Doubt it. Don't think that one happened. No. Especially considering the police called and said otherwise. Yes. That the grandma said otherwise. So now let's talk about Josh Spencer, Joshua Spencer for a sec. And figure out who he is. Let's make sure everybody's clear on that. Cause there's a lot of different players in this story. So Joshua Spencer is Aaron's cousin. He had previously lived with his grandparents in their Providence Boulevard home. So after they went to Maine for the summer, he'd lived with his cousin, Aaron for a bit. However, he was not living at either place by this time in July of 2004. And according to the grandmother, no one was supposed to be living there. It should have been vacant while she was spending her summer in Maine. Now, this guy, Aaron's cousin, Josh, it seems he was hanging with a pretty unsavory crowd. He was squatting there at his grandparents' home and allowed his friends and acquaintances to stay there, too. Neighbors of the grandparents' home on Providence Boulevard reported that there were often pool parties held there and shady characters always coming and going. So I wonder why they didn't call the cops. Yep. So, yeah, this Josh guy was allowing people to live in his grandparents' home while they were away. Live in the home, party in the home. If shady people are coming and going, possibly be selling drugs out of the home. A lot of different things when nobody was supposed to be there. So you'd think the neighbors would say something like we've been saying in the type of neighborhood that it was. It seems like a community that's put together. And yeah, a lot of times when, you know, snowbirds go away, you know, they'll have the neighbors keep a lookout too. And the neighbors will have their phone number, you know, up north or whatever. You know, this was back before cell phones were really popular. So maybe have their home phone number up north or or their cell phone if they had a cell phone and say, hey, give me a call if you see, you know, anything going on over there and keep an eye out for me. So, you know, I thought that was kind of strange, but, you know, you never know if they weren't close to the neighbors or, or what, you know. Most certainly. Um, so on July 31st, 2004, Troy Victorino went to the Providence Boulevard home of the Reedies only to find that his clothing and other items were missing from the residence and that his car had been towed. He knew Aaron Ballinger Belanger through her cousin, his friend Joshua Spencer. Victorino went to Aaron's home, located at 3106 Telford Lane, and told Aaron that her grandmother, Norma Reedy, had given him permission to live in her home on Providence Boulevard. He said that he wanted his things back and described to her the items he was talking about. Victorino wanted Aaron and her boyfriend Flacco to go with him to her grandparents' home so he could retrieve his belongings. So they agreed that they'd meet up the next evening. Victorino says he went back to Aaron and Flacco's home on Telford Lane the following evening, and Flacco came outside and handed him two bags of clothing. 
Victorino attempted to file a complaint with police about his quote-unquote stolen items. The deputy told him to make a list of his missing items, and Victorino ended up telling him to forget about it, that he would take care of it himself. The deputy told Victorino to contact Erin Belanger in order to figure out what she'd taken or removed from her grandparents' home. So, two times in the early morning hours of August 1st, 2004, Erin Belanger called 911 to report that people were at her house banging loudly and screaming for her to come outside. One of these 911 calls was around 1 a.m. and the other was just after 3 a.m. The first time Erin called 911, she told the operator that there were a bunch of girls inside her house and that they wouldn't leave. She was hiding in her bedroom, sitting on the floor. She explained to the 911 operator that earlier at her grandparents' home, she discovered squatters living there and that she'd called the police. The second time Erin called 911, she told the operator that the same group of people were back at her house. A deputy responded to the call. The people that had been terrorizing Erin and her housemates were gone. Wow. And I uh, noticed you said that was on August 1st and uh, that happened on August 6th, the murder. So she Just already like knew it later. was coming. Yeah. yeah trying to get help, but they had left. That's super scary. Yeah. And you can see how it's all building up to like a crescendo. It's like, yeah, it's so frightening. Like, especially now in hindsight, going back and, and looking at it, you know, you wish that you know, they would have gotten arrested or the cops would have caught them there. You know, and in the research, it wasn't really clear, like with these 911 calls, like what happened after each one. It just seemed like that by the time the police got there, that they were already gone. Right. Like they figured out she was on the phone. Yeah. And it's a little bit harder. I feel like after that, there's not as much you can do, especially if it's hard for you to identify the individuals. Yeah. You don't have a specific name for them. Exactly. You know, they know maybe that one guy who was squatting in there, but right. if there's the multiple girls and she yeah. hadn't even encountered a girl, it can be challenging. Yeah, exactly. And you know, the police can't really do anything until something happens. <laughs> yeah. That's what they always say. And that's, terrible. So Christopher Carroll rings the doorbell around 7 a.m. on Friday, August 6th, 2004 at 3106 Telford Lane in Deltona. He's a painter and he's come to pick up two men, Anthony Vega and Roberto Gonzalez, who are going to work with him that day at a job in Tampa. No one answers the doorbell, so he knocks on the door several times and the door just popped open. It looked as though it had been kicked in. He went in and saw that in the bedroom on the right, which was the master bedroom, the bed had been tipped up on its side and it had blood all over it. So he called 911. Imagine that's what you walk into when you go to somebody's house. Some One of your co-workers, you think that you might find them still sleeping and you're like, hey, wake up, we gotta go. Yeah. Never no. would you expect that, right? Never. And, and then, I would be horrified if I did discover something oh like that. Oh my gosh, you you're, you just would never be the same come to find out what happened to everyone in the house. And it's just terrifying. So that is the first part of episode two. This story has quite a bit of content, so I'm going to cover it in two parts. And... um 
that just, you know, told the story of what happened. And part two will be like the aftermath and finding out what happened to the suspects and all of that. Um, but just wanted to leave you with this little tidbit about the story. So after the horrendous crime, members of the community came out and made a memorial near the house on Telford Lane. A 2018 article by the Daytona Beach News Journal reported that bouquets of flowers were dropped off in the area of the house. One bouquet contained a note that read, there really are monsters among us. Yeah, when you read that, it just gave me chills because it's something I see every single day. You never really know somebody. True, true. And that is, those are very true words and it's just... um, very sad story so i hope everybody will join us for part two of episode two to find out uh who the murderers were and what ended up happening to them and where they are now so thank you very much thank you so much holly uh i enjoyed doing this episode with you and i cannot wait to see where part two takes us okay thank you so much my my for being here And again, follow me on my socials. Uh, Facebook and Instagram are at Tell Me a True Crime Story. And Twitter is at Tell Me a TCS Pod. Thank you so much and see you soon. Bye-bye.